You are listening to the Soul Connection Duo podcast, a podcast that explores spirituality, shares vulnerable stories, brings awareness to different healing modalities, and offers hope to individuals who may be grieving a loss. I'm Alexa Mathis. And I'm Sydney Ham, and we are your hosts, also known as the Soul Connection Duo. Get ready to connect to your soul and start healing within. Today, our guest is Dr. Jillian O'Shea Brown. Dr. O'Shea Brown is a complex trauma psychotherapist based in New York City. She is the author of the book, Healing Complex Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder, and serves as an adjunct professor of trauma studies in NYU. Her work has been featured in Vogue, Huffington Post, Thrive Global, Marie Claire, Inc. Magazine, and many other media outlets around the world. Welcome to the Soul Connection Duo podcast, Jillian. We are so excited to have you. Thank you so much for having me. And, um, you know, just in terms of the Soul Duo podcast and the work that you're doing, I've become so interested in the psycho-spiritual lens behind trauma. So I'm just really excited that you've created the space for people to find meaning through their pain. So thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much, Jill. Um, and like you had mentioned in the bio, you had sent us, you're joining us from New York today. Yeah. Amazing. I love it there. I've been there once and I would love to go back there one day. <laughs> love hate relationship. I think people yeah. arrive and they immediately feel like, yes, this is my kind of vibe or there's a very powerful aversion and it's get me out of here quickly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I was only there for a couple of days. It's definitely a busy place, but I, I loved it when I was there. So yeah, <laughs> amazing. Do you mind just telling us a little bit more about yourself and how you got into doing the work that you do now? Yeah. Um, so I, uh, obviously it's not the kind of career that when you're a little girl, you kind of say, oh, I want to be a trauma therapist. Um, it's kind of something that you find over time. And I knew, I knew I was very interested in people and I knew I was very interested in their stories. And growing up, my favorite kind of story to read in a book or to watch in a movie was a story of triumph over adversity, where you'd see somebody really go through very dark, ominous journey, go within almost like the hero's journey, draw upon their own strengths, maybe have a guide or two along the way, and then eventually kind of really living their life's purpose. And this was a story arc that I have loved my whole life. And um, when I first started as a therapist, I was not a trauma therapist, but I noticed from hearing people's stories that the greatest pain in people's lives, you know, the negative core beliefs and the fears, the insecurities, the defense mechanisms, it all kind of came from um, pain that occurred in the context of relationships, really early relationships or what happened too much, what didn't happen enough or, or what they didn't get. And from there, I kind of very reflexively built my toolbox around my clients and particular clients would come with particular issues. And I would, if I couldn't, didn't have the tools to serve them, I would try to find the right modalities. And, and I can talk a little bit about that later, but um, it was really a journey of intuition and going within and what felt right. And um, obviously complex trauma now, you know, relational trauma is such a, a front 
and center topic. And but for so long, I felt like it was this taboo thing of, of a burden or a wound that people carried that nobody talked about. So it's really nice that it's it's in the mainstream now and it's become more part of the collective consciousness and the conversation. Totally. Yeah, we've had a few guests on now that have kind of talked about this like um, generational trauma and things that sometimes we don't remember from earlier on in our lives that have now these um, effects on us kind of in our adult adult life and, you know, the kind of partners we choose to bring into our lives and all these other things as well. Oh, your early formative years and your experience of being parented impacts you know, the love that you're drawn to later on, you know, because we accept the love that we believe we deserve. And that relationship between your romantic life and your experience of being a child is very, very interesting territory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we were actually both just had listened to, we each listened to a different podcast episode that you were on as a guest. And the one I had listened to, you were talking to I remember his name but it, it focused a lot on relationships and he was in a couple of um kind of emotionally abusive relationships oh, as well yes traumatized yeah uh, that was one yeah yeah that was an interesting podcast because he actually almost self-disclosed and put himself in the kind of position of being a vulnerable client and I think that's really nice because it's kind of somebody going within in their own life story and that whole connection between the parent and the romantic partnerships and how the unexamined history is doomed to repetition and we repeat rather than remember and pine for the love we never received and it sneaks into our romantic lives. But you guys really did your research. I'm impressed. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, it was a really good episode. I, I enjoyed it. I actually told Lex right before this. I was like, this is a little bit about that one or what happened in this episode and I felt like I could really relate to it um we have both just kind of come out of in the past several months out of relationships and the one I left was also pretty let's say emotionally abusive as well and um you know it took a lot of things to happen for me to eventually leave that and I think now um, I'm kind of more aware of kind of what my expectations are in a future partner and kind of what I'm looking for. And so I was really relating to that episode as well. And I know Lex has had some other things too in her past also. So it was really, really interesting that you guys are talking about that. So you're both in an, an intentional kind of cleansing period at the moment in between. That is so important. And mm-hmm. you, it's interesting what you're saying about the attempts to leave because statistically speaking, it takes seven to 11 attempts to leave an abusive partnership. And the problem is, is that you get so demoralized and your sense of self and worthiness is so eroded. It's, it's hard to even imagine standing on your own two feet and, you know, taking care of yourself or even putting yourself out there as a friend, as a partner, as a lover in any regard. So it's a really impressive thing to do to intentionally choose to leave a partnership that isn't serving you. I know those have been my biggest growth periods in terms of when I can do that self-reflection and like my biggest lessons I think to date have been in leaving partnerships that weren't serving me at the time so it's really 
so interesting to, um, I mean, even to hear the term complex PTSD. Um, that's not something that I think before looking into the work that you do, it's not something that I thought of or heard of before. And um, I'm wondering maybe if you can just explain a little bit further what complex PTSD is for our listeners and um, so that we can just describe that as we get into kind of these relational things as we're going along. Well, okay, I'm going to give you a little bit of a mini lecture. I hope that's okay. It's not too boring. Very, very quickly. So the very first mentions of trauma in literature came from Shakespeare and also Iliad. And, um, you know, Shakespeare would talk about, you know, nighttime terrors, intrusive thoughts, racing cyclical thoughts. But it wasn't until 1980 that PTSD became a formal diagnosis. And before that, it was kind of shell shock. And it was thought, hmm, people are coming back from the war and they have this strange constellation of symptoms. You know, they're numbing out with substances. They have intrusive thoughts, emotional reactivity, change in mood. Um, And 1980 was when PTSD started to be used. But then there's a very important woman in history, uh, Judith Herman, and she was an American psychiatrist. And she was thinking, what about, you know, the debt by a thousand cuts? What about the trauma that occurs in the context of relationships? And she talked about prisoners of childhood, you know, where you can't set boundaries and you can't create space and you can't, you know, come to voice about, you know, this person's very toxic. I'm going to take a break. You're often left in an unresolvable paradox where, the person you're relying on for protection, nurturance, and guidance is also the person that's creating a lot of emotional distress and pain. And, you know, the bullies in the schoolyard or the antagonist at home are to be tolerated with no room for self-advocacy or boundaries. So it was 1992 that Judith Herman kind of first proposed the term complex trauma. And then it took 30 years of campaigning from Bessel van der Kolk, and you'll know him from the New York Times bestseller, The Body Keeps the Score, and and a whole team that kept petitioning to have it recognized into the um, Diagnostic Statistical Manual and the ICD-11, International Classification of Diseases. And then in 2022, it was finally, you know, accepted as a diagnosis. And before that time, it was in the literature, it was in the research, but Before something's a diagnosis, everybody has a different definition and people have different ideas about the symptoms. So it was kind of coming into the conversation before then, but it's really a very new, the newest diagnosis. Um, And what it really is, is that, you know, I guess I'm going to use a very simple analogy that you might've heard before. If you're going for a picnic in the woods, and you're eating a sandwich and then a bear appears and you're terrified and you're either going to go into fight or flight. You're not going to fight the bear. You're probably going to freeze or you're going to try to run away and your immune system will get suppressed and your digestive system gets interrupted and everything goes into hypervigilance and hyperorienting and safety. And then obviously after a while, it takes a while to come back and ground and get into your window of tolerance again. But if the bear isn't intruding on your picnic, if the bear is your mom, your dad, 
um, a sibling, if the bear lives with you, if the bear is your partner, if the bear is your lover, and if you're totally dysregulated over a long, prolonged period of time, death by a thousand cuts, what starts, you start to get a few different symptoms. You're going to feel very disconnected from your body and it's no longer adaptive for you to always live in hypervigilance. So you might get the protective fog or disassociation where you don't feel connected to the world or your body or the people around you. There's a shame based cognition that comes with complex relational trauma where they tend to create a story where they blame themselves. Um, I'm not worthy. I'm not lovable. I'm not good enough. I'm not safe in the world. Um, I'm not in control. I'm not safe. And under these beliefs, there's always a bed of memories that underpin where that was born. And then on top of all of that, it's hard to trust. It's hard to be vulnerable. Um, there can be complicated relationships with food and, and um, sexuality and uh, risky behaviors and ritualistic compulsive self-soothing. And, you know, it, it's very much about those early formative years, which are meant to be you having a bed of safety, a foundation of a stable, predictable, reliable, secure, nurturing figure that you can rely upon. But if you don't have that base, you can feel very dysregulated in your system and dysregulated in the relationship with yourself and with others. So that would be my very quick synopsis on how it kind of came into being a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And then um, in relation to just PTSD, because most people hear about PTSD, what would be, I guess, the main difference between it? Is it like the length that it's um, been affecting this person for that makes it complex versus PTSD? Or what is that's a fantastic question. And it's a question. So technically speaking, the difference between PTSD versus complex PTSD is that you have single incident trauma versus layered, nuanced, complex trauma. Complex just means a lot. Okay. So it's, it's, it's you know, if we were to put it very simple, uh, one wounding or a lot of wounding, because uh, the word trauma comes from the Greek word for wound. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there is another diagnosis called acute stress disorder, which is the first zero to 30 days after a traumatic event. Mm -hmm. And if your symptoms of um, emotional reactivity, avoidance of triggers, intrusive thoughts, um, if, if they all persist beyond the 30 days, it's PTSD. But how you differentiate complex trauma from PTSD is the nature of the traumatic event. Is it relational in nature? Is it prolonged? Is it over a lengthy period of time? Or, you know, was it a one-off single incident? And how a PTSD survivor would differ from a complex trauma survivor is that the complex trauma survivor, it's kind of like, you know, the bite that fits the wound, that this is the most recent activation that has activated all those old wounds there's a shameful self story. There's more disassociation in terms of how they feel in their body. And they have a much more difficult time trusting and expressing vulnerability and finding stability in relationships because it was relational trauma needs relational repair. So I hope, does that make sense? 
I think so. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of, I'm also trying to kind of relate it to my, my situation as well. Um, I don't know if I, like, I don't know if I ever actually got like a PTSD diagnosis. I kind of was like, I have PTSD, blah, blah, blah. Um, but in 2019, uh, my boyfriend passed away in a very traumatic accident and it took years. It's still going, um, to kind of heal and kind of find myself again. And, um, I think they were very like hesitant. Um, like I had seen, um, psychiatrists and doctors and stuff to like term my symptoms and things I was experiencing as PTSD, even though it went on for years, I think it to a point was, but I think they did end up diagnosing me as like having grief reaction syndrome, um, Mm -hmm. which I thought was interesting. Um, so yeah, I'm just kind of trying to relate it to that a little bit. And then the last relationship I had gotten out of too, I think that last year I was really struggling and a lot of the things I had kind of been experiencing from that trauma started kind of reappearing in regards to like trust and just like feeling unsafe and you know starting to have panic attacks again and things like that and then I think too when I did break up with this person also I kind of went through that trauma traumatic experience again in a way which I wasn't expecting at all so I don't know if there are some underlying things in there as as well in in my situation but well I I think for your listeners when you have a story or kind of an example because then you can really start to apply the theories the definitions to your lived experience and for me I think the simplest way of thinking about trauma is when the past is intruding on the present right so in 2019 you know you had the traumatic and sudden loss of your partner and then that event it kept replaying and intruding upon your present day life um do you feel comfortable saying a little bit about how that intruded upon your life in terms of your thoughts or your emotions or sleep or how it impacted you know different areas of your life yeah I mean I'm like sometimes when I think back on the last four years I'm like oh my gosh it's a bit of a a blur um but definitely I do think like um I'm definitely more of like a stress case I would say I worry a lot more than I should or maybe like the average person does um I think trust too my trust in certain things out in the world or people definitely I have maybe developed some kind of trust issues in that as in that regard as well um I mean sleep obviously has been a huge struggle for me over the last few years it's slowly getting better but I do find definitely certain times of the year it um changes a little bit as well um and same with like food and appetite too as you were talking about that too sometimes I go through these phases where all I want to eat is junk food (laughs) comfort food or like sometimes I can't eat at all um things like that the first thing about you know feeling like you're more of a worrier um the clinical term for that is hypervigilance mm-hmm. it's on edge and you're always you don't want to be blindsided you're kind of hyper orienting or hyper aware and you know from a neurobiological standpoint that's very adaptive in the aftermath of a trauma because your amygdala in your brain your fight or flight it really doesn't like that you're blindsided 
-hmm. it wants to make protect you from that so if you're always thinking about what could go wrong or worrying then there's a part of you that's trying to protect you from being blindsided the way you were that day when you discovered about the loss totally yeah and it was such a like sudden event and shock too um I mean even when you're talking at the start about complex PTSD I remember that day like everything shut down I couldn't eat um I couldn't go pee I don't think I peed for like 14 hours that day um like just everything shuts down it was like one of the craziest things I had ever gone through experience just feeling totally like numb and just didn't even know what was going on that day at all like it was one of the craziest craziest days I've ever had and I'm sure I will ever have in my life but yeah so well it sounds like it was really surreal it was almost beyond what you could ever imagine being possible and then you talked about your sleep but you also talked about it in the context of season and time of year when did the loss occur when was that what season it was in April um and it's weird I do find like kind of late fall into the winter is when I struggle the most with sleep like usually around November December um I mean obviously in April too I have a hard time but I do find every like fall like kind of coming up now I'm like kind of expecting to go into that little funk that I usually get into and into the winter and yeah but I don't know it's it's interesting. So trauma is a very tough thing. Is it hard to get to sleep or is there reoccurring dreams or? Um, I, I don't really have a lot of dreams anymore. I used to wake up like panicking in the middle of the night and things like that. Now it's, um, I wake up really, really early and sometimes in the middle of the night, but I usually don't have as hard of a time falling asleep now, but for a while, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't lay in bed with my thoughts going like I just needed to like fall asleep instantly or else I would be laying in bed trying to fall asleep and then like having these thoughts kind of cycling through that was impacting my ability to fall asleep but that was probably like the first year that was the most challenging for sure and that's the interesting thing is trauma leaves behind clues and you know the constellation of symptoms are so unique um for different survivors and um the racing cyclical thoughts, it can feel like a skipping disc where you keep replaying the most painful part over and over again. And for a lot of people, it's going from feeling really safe and in control to suddenly getting information that totally overwhelms your system. And that's beyond belief. And and you brought up another really interesting area that a lot of trauma survivors would resonate with is that, you know, in the aftermath of the trauma, it changed your relationship with food. Uh, you notice different cravings or different patterns or behaviors. Um, do you feel do you feel comfortable giving an example? And if I'm being too yeah. intrusive, no, I'm I'm an open book. Honestly, I've had to talk about. I like went to therapy the day I got back from. It happened when I was away on a trip, so I've been very open, honestly, kind of since the beginning with this. Mm-hmm. I I don't mind sharing at all. Um, but yeah, I'm if I go back to kind of when it first happened for the first three weeks, I don't remember eating anything overly solid or healthy. It was like really sugary coffees and like some fruit and then maybe some other like sweet things, but I don't think I had actually eaten a full meal for probably about 
like three and a half weeks until after I'd gotten home. Um, and I kind of continued like that through that first summer. I just remember like craving sweets and just comfort kind of food things. And I do find that now that when I get stressed, just other things in my life, either work or this relationship I was in or things like that, I would, you know, resort back to like, you know, eating candy or other things rather than like eating a healthy balanced meal. So I've definitely gotten better with it over the last few years. Like I'm not just like eating junk food every single day. Um, but I do find in times of stress, that's kind of my, I resort back to that. Um, well, food is a deeply emotional thing. Like if you think about it, we go from being fed by the breasts or the bottle to, you know, then feeding ourselves and we associate it with comfort, you know, ritualistic compulsive comfort and behind every behavior is a feeling and behind every feeling there's a need. And I guess what I've learned um, from my clients, I've seen different patterns and behind every food craving, there's an, there's a, an emotional need. So for example, if a person gets home from a really stressful day at work and they just, they just can't stop thinking about chips or pretzels. I want to get chips or pretzels, pretzels. And then the gnash, 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 the movement of the jaw, it's actually dispelling feelings of anger and frustration. And it's very primal instinct just to gnash down on the jaw. The jaw. Or if you want the cakes and the sugar, uh, the serotonin and dopamine, you know, that you would get from them, it's very similar to the love and the affection hormones. So you're craving that love and affection and warmth and nurturance. And then a lot of people actually in the aftermath of grieving, they feel the deep pang of grief in their stomach and they think it's hunger because it feels like a deep hunger pang, but it's grief. And they try to fill, fill, fill it up with pizza, pasta, carbs, just a feeling of fullness. And they're trying to not to feel their grief, but they think if I get rid of this hunger-like sensation, I won't be grieving anymore. I'll feel full and warm and comfortable. So food is so primal in terms of what it offers in terms of emotional regulation. And, you know, as I said before, um, trauma leaves behind clues. And rather than judging the relationship of food just to go, isn't that interesting? Or I'm curious why it's always this. When I feel this way that I always reach for this, and what is the feeling that it gives me? And, and the overarching need, you know, the food is just a symptom. You know, it's just like a little clue of the underlying wound. Um, but I do think we all have to be kinder to ourselves in terms of those indulgences or those impulses that we reach for when we're hurting. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the other thing I really struggled with, too, the first think four months or so and then I had to go on medication for it was heartburn I couldn't eat like anytime I ate some kind of a bigger meal I would experience like the worst indigestion heartburn um, ever and I had to go on Pantaloc for it actually until that kind of settled down so that was like another thing that kind of impeded my ability to eat decent sized meals was because I felt like crap every time after basically as well um, so that's why I would kind of just like have lots of Starbucks, like coffee. I lived off coffee for four months or like just yeah. smaller little things. Cause I, my body just like couldn't tolerate 
a normal sized meal for a, quite a bit of time. The way that you're talking, it just sounds like your autonomic nervous system was really switched on. It was really on guard. It was really on edge. Um, and a lot of people will kind of eat throughout the day grazing, comfort eating, because, you know, our ancestors, if, if they weren't, if they were eating a meal, that meant they weren't being chased by a saber tooth tiger and they weren't starving to death. So your adrenaline, your cortisol would go down. You'd get a comfort feeling. It would feel like I'm safe. Um, but then to actually, you know, be able to feel regulated enough to eat a meal. It's so telling to me that in your sleep and in the way you felt in your body and in your food, in your relationships and how safe you felt in the world, that there was this interesting constellation of symptoms that feel very disparate but it all boils down to one thing that you just didn't feel safe in the world. Huge intrusion trauma had swept in and blindsided you. And, you know, it was neurobiologically adaptive for the body to hyper orientate, to protect you from any future threats, but the body and the brain don't realize that the risk of harm has passed and that you're now safe. And that is a lot of the work of trauma healing is, um, communicating below conscious awareness that the risk of harm has now passed and that lingers for a while and it's a miscommunication between you know the unconscious and the conscious and your body is your friend and not your foe and it's your protector and not your enemy but when you're in the middle of your trauma it can feel like such a betrayal from your body you, you know it just doesn't feel like a safe place to be mm -hmm. but you know, I'm glad you're talking through the symptoms because I feel like a lot of people will resonate with the way that you were feeling. And, and it's, it's this wide constellation of symptoms that you wouldn't necessarily group them together. But when you zoom out and look at them at a wider lens, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. Just like on that note too, like I hopped right into um, therapy, like I said, when I got home and EMDR processing. So I did start that process pretty quick yeah. as well so I did notice this kind of progression of things slowly right. getting better um and kind of facing those those things the triggers that continued to affect my there was a certain number of events that would affect my day-to-day -day. so working through those two right away um was yeah huge helpful and we can get in we've already had someone on to talk about EMDR as well um, but that was like a huge part of my healing as well it's amazing well, you know, um, it was 10 years ago that the World Health Organization did a meta-analysis review of all of the um, trauma modalities. And they made the recommendation that EMDR and trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy were the only recommended treatments for the treatment of trauma. So um, the fact that you very quickly took the initiative to engage in an evidence-based treatment for symptom reduction, grounding, and stabilization. That was, that was a really wonderful choice. Yeah. I didn't want to do it. I hated going and I'm like, Oh my God, I have to do this again today. Like I was going probably four hours of counseling a week for the first couple months, like two hour sessions, a couple times a week. And then it slowed down a bit, but yeah, I was, I dreaded it every time, but I also have a nursing background too. So I was like, you know what? I want to, faces head on I didn't drink anything for an entire year like I was like I want to let's 
let's do this kind of thing. And I had a lot of amazing supports and friends and family in my life too, who would, you know, drive me to counseling because I couldn't drive myself and just things like that too. But it was a whirlwind. (laughs) And when you were dreading it, what allowed you to lean into the discomfort of doing something that you felt would have long-term benefits, but in the moment it was so uncomfortable and you just wanted to avoid Oh, I don't know. That's a good question. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I just like, it was so painful and just everything I was experiencing in my life, like not being able to get out of bed and eat and, you know, not feeling like a normal, you know, I was 24 years old and all my friends are, you know, off doing things with their boyfriends and having babies and getting married. And I was like, you know what, like this sucks. It really sucks. And I don't want to have this impact me to this extent for like, you know, for years. And so I was just really like, I know it's going to be a lifelong thing. It's going to be something that's always going to suck for me. But I was just, I think, really motivated right off the hop to, to work through it. Um, you witness that healing journey in a more physical, tangible way where a person comes in with the wound, the injury, the disease, and they're in the heart of the pain and they can't see beyond the pain. And then you're with them, attentively caring for them. And, you know, eventually they get discharged, depending what kind of nurse you were serving as. And, you know, you've in so many ways witnessed the healing journey in your work over and over again so I guess you have belief in the power of healing totally yeah I mean I was nursing mostly in maternity when I had gone off so I was delivering babies so it wasn't all just like sickness and illness but I did obviously work in emerge and medical and things like that so I'd seen a lot of stuff that I was like you know I'm not going to cover this up with substances because I already know how that's going to go and I don't want to end up up there Um, And so I was just like, really, I think as much as I feel like I maybe wasn't strong minded and willed at the time, I know looking back, I was like, it was was really challenging, but I I couldn't have done it with, if I didn't have, you know, the friends and family that I have, there's no way my dog, I couldn't have gone through any of it. It was crazy. So, yeah. It's really interesting what you're bringing up, because when you think about these symptoms of trauma, post-traumatic stress, um, intrusion emotional reactivity avoidance numbing and avoidance and numbing I kind of like to think of it as a jack-in-the-box and there's it's a scary thing a jack-in-the-box because you never know when it's going to pop up and you've no control over it and it kind of feels like it's it's startling and and it, it can give you an exaggerated startle response but if it was out all the time it would lose its power And, you know, with trauma, what you suppress becomes intrusive. And the more you suppress and numb, the more intrusive those thoughts and feelings and memories become. Mm -hmm. You can actually hold them to compassionate witnessing or processing. They lose a little bit of their power and you get to complete the story or complete the memory. And a lot of trauma survivors will actually fall foul to the numbing out and the escapism and the suppressing and the running away, which aggravates the pain and prolongs the healing journey and creates more intrusion. So at the age of 24, to make a very thoughtful decision of, 
I'm not going to go down the road of ritualistic compulsive comfort seeking. I'm going to lean into the discomfort of talking about and processing the trauma and lean on my friends and family for support. Um, that was a very astute decision, but unfortunately it's, it's a decision a lot of trauma survivors don't make. You're saving grace. Secrecy and the silence and the shame just perpetuates the pain. Yeah. And I think like being out in nature too, like there were so many things I did that. Well, first few months, cause it was summer, but even first year, like Lex and I, we knew each other growing up. We weren't super close, but even just her being like, you know, let's go out quadding together. Let's go out in nature. All these things, my friends, you know, they didn't pull me out to do, but encouraged me to do with them really helped too. And being out in nature was a huge thing, like going, um, over to Vancouver Island and going surfing and just all these things that I didn't fully totally feel there. And I wasn't overly, yeah. I didn't have a sense of joy in a lot of the things I was doing, but I was thankful. I was at yeah. least doing something to distract myself a little bit and keep busy during the day and then be with people that I love too. I'm so thankful for that. So <laughs> I'm proud of myself also too, at 24 years old for, I didn't have a sip of alcohol for an entire year. Like I'm I'm very proud looking back <laughs> that I just did what I did, but it sucks. But say yes to things and say yes to people and try new experiences at a time when you probably wanted to self-isolate and cocoon mm-hmm. and really small. You were saying yes to things and showing up. And there's a lot said for that in life you know in terms of novelty and connection and adventure just to actually say yes and show up before cutting off options or you know cutting people out Mm -hmm. yeah I just want to like add to that and just say how much I admired watching Sydney through the whole process of all of it it was just obviously she had been through something that most people will never even be able to imagine experiencing in their lifetime and just the way that she has handled it with so much grace and um, really just trying all the time to improve and learn and grow through the process it's been really amazing as a friend to watch that so thank you Sid for just showing up that's beautiful and and I think it's something that's not talked about enough is as the friend you know as the compassionate witness what it's like to witness a person you know darkest and most ominous moments and and what do you do and it sounds like you extended invites and kept an open door and tried to create moments for connection and adventure and um but it sounds like the trauma actually brought your relationship closer together uh you know yeah can you tell me more about that Lex. <laughs> yeah big time it did um so a little bit of our backstory is that i was really good friends with sydney's boyfriend at the time spencer um and we had grown up together gone to high school together and he was my best guy friend and we did a lot of things together and when sydney came into his life um she was amazing and didn't care that he had friends that were girls and so him and I maintained a really great relationship through the time that they were dating as well um and Sid and I knew each other always but we weren't um we were never close through school we went to different high schools 
Um, and so we were always just kind of acquaintances. And actually, right after his passing, she reached out and we started chatting and were able to really connect through the grief of losing him. And um, it's just been a really amazing experience to like get to grow our relationship through that bond of both loving him and yeah we've really like now she is one of my best friends in the entire world and I'm so thankful that he brought us together in the way that he did that's amazing so not only shared loss and a shared trauma but you had this vicarious resilience that you were part of each other's healing journey an interesting concept I don't know if um, it's been talked about before in your podcast um, post-traumatic growth because you know we all know what post-traumatic stress is that lingering hypervigilance and fear and intrusion and emotional reactivity but post-traumatic growth is um, when you go through something that's so painful that you have to go within and draw upon your own strengths and resources And you never know the test of your own character or the test of your relationships until you've been challenged by adversity. And in those moments where everything gets stripped away and you feel so injured and unsafe, it's the moment where you really have to show up for yourself and you see the people that are there for you. And, you know, that vicarious resilience, that coming together in those darkest moments, it can actually forge a a greater sense of compassion and connectedness and trust and self-awareness and um, spirituality. Um, So you've turned something that was incredibly painful into something actually very beautiful, you know, because it was the birth of a deeper friendship. Yeah, that was exactly it. And I mean, all of those things that you're saying that it like really birthed in both of our lives, I think, to like continue to grow and be on our own spiritual paths like I don't think that without his passing we either of us would be where we are in our own growth and our spiritual exploration and yeah the way that our paths have changed in terms of just having that experience has really been incredible like that's why our podcast is here and why we get to talk to cool people like you and and that we get to have each other in this way in our lives too. So really cool. Thank you for sharing that piece with us, Jill. Like that's not something that I've ever been aware of. Well, you know, a lot of the times with a traumatic life event, there's a version of you before and there's a version of you after. And you kind of feel like a part of you died. But there can be a renaissance, a rebirth, where from the ashes of all of that, you reconstruct yourself um, a stronger, renewed, deeper, more compassionate version, more feeling version of yourself. And I guess what I've noticed from talking to trauma survivors is that they, the people that have walked in the pathway of trauma are some of the most wise and feeling and compassionate and emotionally intelligent people that have the deepest capacity for attunement and resonance because of the trauma not despite it so you know there are some gifts that come from trauma but obviously you know it's incredibly painful but there is 
growth and there is an, an evolution arc that can go through navigating the pain, especially if you get to do it with a loved one. Yeah, yeah I think that's like just bringing up that piece of radical responsibility and how we can choose what we do with our pain or whatever it is we're experiencing in life. And yeah. I know that that's, it, it can be really incredible what you can build with it if you use it in the right ways. So, Well, the choice is so important um, because, you know, there's a saying, it's very common, you know, in, in trauma, uh, Freud's theory of repetition compulsion, where we repeat rather than remember, and we can relive the same pain over and over again. And the power of choice is that you repeat or evolve. And um, if you're evolving and if you're choosing, you know, a new pathway, you know, new adaptive decisions or new relationships or new coping strategies or new ways of taking care of yourself, um, it can be the pathway to growth, but it takes a while to get there um, and it's not easy. And I haven't actually heard of that term before, the, the radical radical accountability responsibility but yeah I think you could use accountability as well there totally I really like it I think it's incredibly important it's it's owning it you know yeah. and it's more of choice yeah I think like I love to talk about that piece I know I I don't know if you know Aubrey Marcus he has a podcast as well and he talks about that piece a lot but we've also had some other guests on that have have spoken to that and it really seems that if you're taking that accountability responsibility for whatever is happening in your life it can shift things drastically right um and the outcomes are going to be drastically different if you're blaming the world for what is happening to you versus really accounting for controlling your controllables and yeah I, I couldn't agree more I think it's a very powerful you know concept um to own it to take back your power and you know, one of the biggest things about a traumatic life event is that you'll feel powerless and not in control. And it's so easy to go into that trauma vortex of why me? Um, nothing good can come of this. I have no power. I have no control. I have no, um, I have no say over my destiny. And to go within and to actually make intentional choices and you know, assume a level of control and decisive action and wise risking, you know, balancing the duty of care versus the dignity of risk. Um, that's a very empowering thing. And it's it's the pathway out of trauma. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally resonate with all that. I'm just like, yeah, <laughs> the first while too, I was definitely like, why did this happen to me? And what did I do to deserve this? What did he do to deserve this? Like you go through that cycle for quite a bit of time and I kind of noticed like kind of past the year year and a half mark I moved away from home and kind of started fresh and you know made some new friends and I wasn't constantly being reminded of this thing that had happened to me and people not everyone knew you know it was hard being from a small town and walking around and everyone's talking about you and oh she's out like she must be okay or like you know what I mean um kind of thing and some of the people that have come into my life these friendships and um, just these other friendships that I wasn't as close with that have grown into like my best friends. It's, it's been really amazing to just, um, you know, evolve in that way as well with these relationships and draw on some really like some of 
these people I've met in just the last couple of years that I would call my them the, my best friends now as well. And um, yeah, it's it's been really cool. And like Lex said, we probably wouldn't be doing this podcast or exploring any spirituality or anything if that hadn't have happened. And we choose to take something that was awful and, you know, um, share it with, like I shared my story with everyone on this podcast. It has over 600 listens and I'm like, wow, 600 people have heard what happened to me. That's kind of crazy. But I was like, you know, if it helps one person, then I'm okay with sharing it. Um, So yeah, it's been been a really cool journey and and yeah but it's you know it was a cataclysmic event in your life and you know not to spiritually bypass it because in that dark moment it was a deeper pain than you ever thought that you could work through and it shattered your sense of self and how safe you felt in the world and then very slowly you know through your own courage and willingness to lean into the discomfort and openness to trusting you pieced your life back together and when you look at it now um, it's a bit like Plato's the grand design you know if you were looking at a Monet painting up close it doesn't make any sense it's all these chaotic dots but you stand across the room and you look at it and from that perspective you connect the dots and it all makes sense all these years later you know you look back and it feels like a very natural evolution in terms of who you are today. So Mm -hmm. it's have that perspective, but I'm also not taking away the magnitude of what you went through. Mm -hmm. I think like the spiritual side of things too, in addition to these relationships, people in my life I had was a huge part of my healing um, and just like awakening and kind of, realizing like there is more out there than we we know about or we think we know about um do you you were saying you work a lot more from like the psycho spiritual perspective with your clients as well do you mind just talking a little bit about that also yeah um I guess you know over the years and you know it's been over a decade now of hearing you know different people's experiences of going through trauma and you hear the story arc of a traumatic event happens and there's a meaning that they make of it, a story they tell themselves about themselves and it leaves a mark or a wound on the inside. And then in different ways, a person can relive or re-experience different versions of that wound or the bite that fits the wound over and over again. Mm -hmm. And as they're processing those memories and they're going within um, connecting with their own innate healing power or trying to make meaning um, it feels very spiritual to zoom out and look back at yourself as a compassionate witness, one foot in the present, one foot in the past, and reimagine the event in terms of the meaning you made of it at the time. Like it might go from I'm a bad person to it wasn't my fault. Or it might go from I'm unlovable to I am worthy of love, but I chose somebody that was very familiar and it was a pain I knew I could live with and a pain I knew I could tolerate and a puzzle I wanted to resolve from an earlier time in my life. And you see this evolution of character that happens in the trauma processing. And, you know, it's a bit like in um, in Greek myth where, you know, the protagonist goes through this dark, ominous story 
and then they evolve to overcome the challenge and they emerge the complex and interesting hero. And it's very similar when you take that walk with someone through trauma, that dark middle of no way out, either they're ritualistically compulsively comfort seeking or they're reenacting the pain or there's just self-destructive impulses to getting to the other side with a deeper sense of clarity and a more harmonious relationship with themselves and others, but a deeper sense of compassion and connection and empathy and self-wisdom. And when you take that walk with people and you see this growth, um, it, it feels very spiritual. It feels like an evolution of the soul. Um, and then you zoom out and you look at all of these stories and you see reoccurring themes and patterns and it can become a very beautiful, prideful, emotional process. And it's a pr great privilege to take the walk with someone. Yeah, that's so beautiful to really be able to, because I'm sure you you know so many people's stories in the line of work that you have done for the last 10 years. And to look from an outsider perspective and really see that growth and the soul evolution of it I think I've never heard it described that way so thank you for that perspective of it and for just I think putting into words what so many of us feel as we're going through all of these experiences in our lives and trying to grow and learn from them well I feel very lucky because like I get to see and witness be the compassionate witness of the stories um but historically, trauma was a very secretive, silent, shameful, lonely thing. And it was something that wasn't talked about. Um, and I know that with your podcast, there are people that are nodding along and listening and going, wow, she's putting into words what I'm feeling. And now I don't feel alone anymore. And I, I feel like the conversations around trauma are so important for that reason. Um, but then when you do watch these story arcs, these character evolution journeys, you know, triumph over adversity. It's, it's really beautiful. Um, even though the traumatic event itself can be unsayable or it can be heartbreaking or it, it can completely erode your ego and your sense of self. Uh, watching a person heal, and you'll understand this, you know, as a nurse too, when you see a wound healing, or you see a body getting stronger, or you see somebody's confidence coming back. It, it, that's a really beautiful thing. Sure. Yeah. And like you said, it's a privilege to walk along someone too when they're going through these difficult journeys and things and see that growth and um, you know, personal development, they're evolving as individuals. It, it is a really special experience as well. And I've been able to help other people either through this podcast or just like in other areas of their life and even though I've been through it I've had people who have you know had the privilege I guess you could say of being alongside me even though sometimes I was kind of an asshole to people that were just trying to help me but that's what happens um but it's it, it really truly is a privilege to walk along some aside someone through their pain and um witness that that growth it's it's really beautiful like you were saying so yeah thank you no, it's not despite what you've been through, but because of what you've been th through, you will be uniquely positioned 
to give a voice to or compassionately witness or understand or guide others because of the practice wisdom you developed from navigating your journey. So it, it's a power in that way. Yeah, those, I think, um, just learning from you, Jill, today and hearing, again, some of Sydney's experiences this has been overall just a really amazing conversation that we got to have today and I'm so glad we could have you on thank you so so much for joining us um I think we could both go on and on and continue <laughs> to chat with you but we are getting to the end of the time slot here and so um I don't know if you have any final thoughts you'd like to share um before we get into all of the things or all of the places that people can find you as well. But um, yeah, if we just want to start to to close this up. Well, I want to thank both of you. Um, Sydney, you know, making the self-disclosures and telling your story, I feel like theories around trauma and definitions, they don't embed into the consciousness a personal heartfelt story that's what people remember and it allows people to really connect with and relate to you know the conversation topics and, and then you know for you Lex in terms of being the pillar for somebody or the anchor in an unsteady world and you know even though it was a shared trauma and it was a shared loss it's really lovely to see you know female friendship being role modeled in this way and how you know not to be afraid to lean in and show up for someone in their darkest moment because sometimes people get so flustered and confused and they think space and privacy and I shouldn't invite them out but to lean in and actually show up is very powerful um, so thank you both for having me and for shining a light on the psycho spiritual lens of trauma which I don't think gets talked about enough um, I like to share a lot of psychoeducation and self-care tips and trauma information online. I'm on um, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, LinkedIn as Dr. Gillian O'Shea Brown. And then on Twitter, I'm Dr. O'Shea Brown. But if you Google me, I think I'm the only one with this name. And um, I have a bi-weekly newsletter as well, where I'll do little tips and tricks. And from my books, I actually publicly share a lot of the material in bite-sized ways so if anyone wants more information or if anyone wants any free resources or they just want to share it to a loved one then I'd be you know very happy if people take a little look at my page and thank you again for having me thank you so much Jillian it's been honestly just a pleasure having you and I think this will be an episode that a lot of people can relate to. And um, I think that's just really important, especially kind of the state of the world right now. There's a lot of trauma and hard things going on. So I really hope this one is one that people really can enjoy and um, relate to and share with other people who may be struggling as well. So thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom and expertise on this, on this topic. Thank you for listening to the Soul Connection Duo podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Your support for our podcast helps us to grow our amazing community and allows us to create new and exciting episodes each month. 
please leave us a rating and review on your favorite listening platform and be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram for new content updates and more.